Go ahead and have a seat if you haven't already. My name's Nate Collins. I'm pastoral resident at Bethany Green Lake, and I'm glad to be with you this morning. Let me read our scripture passage for us, or part of it. We're looking at um, Ezekiel chapter 8 through chapter 11. You'll be glad to know I won't read the whole thing, um, but I'll read uh, just the beginning and the end of this passage for us. Ezekiel 8. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me. The hand of the Lord fell upon me there. Then I looked, and behold, a form that had appeared to, uh, excuse me, a form that had the appearance of a man. Below what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. He put out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north, where was the seat of the image of jealousy which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw in the valley. And then this is Ezekiel 11, starting at verse 14. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, your brothers, even your brothers, your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, all of them are those of whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Go far from the Lord. To us this land is given for a possession. Therefore, say, Thus says the Lord, Though I removed them far off among the nations, and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. But as for those whose heart goes after their detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads, declares the Lord God. So this is the beginning and the ending uh, of a, a sort of a long passage of a vision that Ezekiel has. And this is the passage we're going to be looking at today. So would you pray with me as we begin? Lord God, I ask that you would guide us as we look at your word together this morning. I ask that you would uh, send your spirit to be here among us, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to respond to your word, that you would quicken our minds and quicken our hearts. Amen. Well, I'm glad to be with you. I got to come preach here about a year ago, I think it was, and many of you may not have been here. Apparently there is some race going on that a lot of you are a part of, I think. So I don't remember what race that was, but it's good to hear you guys are an active community doing stuff together. So I'm glad to be back. Um, my family and I have uh, had the opportunity or, or the, the unfortunate reality, depending on your perspective, I guess, of uh, doing kind of a West Coast tour in terms of where we live. We've had to move a fair bit because I keep going to school. Uh, and so that takes us to various places. One of the places we've gotten to live is Pasadena, California. Um, and what, I guess maybe like the one good thing about living in Pasadena from our perspective was the beaches. Pasadena itself is 
very hot. I'm from the Northwest, from Seattle. My wife Katie's from Portland. And, um, and so it was too hot for us. But we love to go to the beaches. And one of the things I like to do there was to surf. I, I had tried surfing a few times and I determined that while I was down there studying at Fuller, I was going to learn how to surf. And so we, we got like the cheapest possible surfboard that we could find. And um, I gave it the old college try. And I, I never got very good, but I did get good enough to where I could stand up pretty regularly when the conditions were decent. So that was, it was a lot of fun. Um, and to me, there's something just like really exciting. I love all kinds of outdoor activities, but there's nothing that quite equals to me that feeling when you're, you're laying on your board out in the water, you look back, you see the wave kind of starting to, to form behind you and you start paddling. And then you, you, if you're fast enough, you feel the, the wave pick you up and it lifts you up and it, and it carries you forward. And it, at that moment, you realize that the wave is in control and it's lifting you and carrying you. And it's, it's a very thrilling and exciting uh, feeling to me that I've not experienced in other forms of outdoor activities. You know, like if you're, if you're on a jet ski, that can be fun, but you've got a throttle, so you're in complete control. Even in sailing, you're dependent on the wind, but you're, you're in a sense harnessing the wind with those sails. But in surfing, it's the wave that has all the power and you're, you're, you're interacting with it, you're playing with it, but you don't have hardly any control over the power of the wave. So it's something that I love to do, but I also have this strange kind of self-defeating tendency with it, with surfing, and a lot of fun things if I'm honest. As much as I want to go surfing, whenever I have the opportunity, there's a part of me that kind of resists and I get... I get actually a little bit nervous about it. I get a little bit scared and hesitant to actually get out in the water. And part of this is because surfing is actually pretty intense, at least in my opinion. To get out, to catch a wave, you've got to get past all those breaking waves. And it's not hard when you're swimming. You just dive under the waves. It's no problem. But when you're a, a bad surfer like me, you have this great big longboard that's just like so buoyant that there's no way you can get under the waves. So you just have to plow through them, which means you're getting blasted in the face over and over again by these waves as you're trying to paddle out there. Um, and I've I found that it's amazing. When I stand up, four feet doesn't seem very high, but when I'm laying flat on a board and I see a four-foot wave looming up in front of me and I realize that I'm a little bit too far back to make it over before it crashes and it's gonna, it, it flips me over and it, it, it pounds me down into the water and uh, rolls me around like a washing machine a few times, all of a sudden a four, four feet looks pretty huge to me. Uh, so there's, there's that sense of a little bit of fear about kind of the intensity of it. But it's not just nervousness about getting tumbled around a few times. There's something in me that shies away from the thrill itself. And it's strange. I don't know why this is, but it's almost like I'm afraid of the joy and the excitement of surfing. And so sometimes I'll, I'll chicken out and I'll just stay on the beach because... It's easier to sit on the beach, and it's nice to sit on the beach, uh, but I choose sort of a lesser, a lesser enjoyment uh, because of, uh, of some fear or some resistance. And in our passage today, in Ezekiel, we're going to see that Israel is in sort of a similar situation. God has called them into an intense, full life in relationship with him, but they opt out, and they chase after other things. They chase, instead, uh, instead of taking courage and getting out amongst the waves... They just stay on the beach. And we, I think, can sometimes have this same problem. We'll see as we go through that there's a few things that are keeping Israel from this life that God wants them to have, and they're things that we often struggle with as well. So the main point that I want to get across to you this morning is that God wants to give us life through a covenant relationship with us. 
And we're going to look first at two problems that Israel had that were separating them from God and therefore from the life that God wanted to give them. And these are idolatry and greed. And then we're going to take a look at how even in the midst of, uh, of severe punishment that God is going to send to Israel, there's the hope for Israel. So first we'll look at idolatry. And this, uh, as I mentioned, this is a long passage that we're talking about this morning. Um, and there's not time to read it all, so I'm going to kind of summarize it as we go along. If you want to open your Bibles, uh, that may be helpful for you. This first section on idolatry and the punishment God uh, sends is, is chapters 8 through 10. Um, so that's where we'll be at in the beginning of our sermon here. The vision starts out, as I read <clears throat> a few moments ago, with Israel, uh, excuse me, Ezekiel being yanked by his hair from Babylon to Jerusalem in a vision. I uh, would have thought that God, who is all-powerful and good, could find a more comfortable way to transport Ezekiel in his vision. But uh, that's what he does. He yanks him by his hair and plops him down in Jerusalem. And uh, he's in the temple. And he sees God's glory in the temple. Now, you'll probably remember if you were here last week, we talked about the beginning of Ezekiel's visions. And he has this great vision of God's glory. He sees the same a similar vision of God's glory here in the temple. It's probably in the Holy of Holies where God's, <clears throat> uh, where God's glory was understood to dwell, typically. Um, then he's told, while he's in the temple, he's told to look up by the north gate. And he sees there something called the image of jealousy. We're not told much about what the image of jealousy is. But uh, an image is another word for an idol. Image, idol are, are equivalent in... Scripture, and we know that idols are not allowed in the temple, right? You're not allowed to build an image of God, and you're not allowed to put images of other gods in God's temple. So whatever this, this image of jealousy is, it's some kind of an idol, and it's provoking God to jealousy. And we can understand why. People are worshiping something other than him in his own house, in his own temple. This is a deep betrayal of God. And God says to Ezekiel that this idolatry is going to drive him from his own sanctuary. He can't stand to be in his house with this going on. But it gets worse. Ezekiel then, he sees a hole in the wall. There's, the, the temple has several kind of layers of walls that you've got to go through to get into the heart of the temple. And he sees in, in, in one of the outer walls a hole. And God tells him to dig, dig uh, in this hole. So he's digging in this hole and as he digs, he finds a door in the wall. It's, it's sort of like a weird dream sort of a situation where all of a sudden there's a hole and then it turns into a door or whatever. God says, go through the door. So he goes through the door. He's now deeper in the temple. And in this part of the temple, it's dark. <clears throat> but in the dark, through the dimness, he can see that there's these images of, of animals drawn on the walls. And in there are 70 of the elders of Israel. They've all got their incense that they're burning uh, you can think of kind of like the, um, the incense that they swing in the in Catholic and Anglican churches. There's like a, a jar with some incense in it and the smoke comes out and it smells nice. And It's part of their worship ceremony. They've got incense and they're worshiping these animals scrawled on the walls. Now, when, he, when Ezekiel uses this phrase, 70 elders... It'll remind uh, the careful reader of uh, the, one of the last times that 70 elders were mentioned. It's not, they're not mentioned as a group of 70 very often, but one of the times that they are mentioned as 70 elders is back in the Exodus. So you remember they come out of Egypt, 
The first stop on their journey is Mount Sinai in the desert. And they're in the desert and God's glory comes down on top of the mountain in clouds and fire and lightning. And, um, and God calls Moses and the 70 elders up onto the mountain and they go up on the mountain and there, there uh, God is, they see God uh, standing over kind of a, a lapis lazuli uh, pavement, it's called, and the, the elders sit down with Moses and, and they feast before God. So this is, this is what the reader may think of when they, when they hear these 70 elders. Here, the 70 elders are worshiping these kind of graffiti of animals on the walls of the temple. It's a stark contrast. These elders should be doing what the, what the former elders did. They should be devoting themselves to God. They should be worshiping to God. They should be feasting before God with the sacrifices they offer. All these sacrifices in the temple, most of them uh, are actually like a barbecue. You, 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 you offer the animal as a sacrifice, which is cooking the animal, and then you eat it before God, and it's, it's a form of worship. This is what they ought to be doing, but instead, they're worshiping these animals, um, they seem to think God won't notice if they're in the dark. They're hiding in the dark. And this is rem- reminiscent of something that John says in his gospel in the New Testament. He says, uh, this is John chapter 3, starting verse 19. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried on in God. These elders have sought refuge in the darkness rather than in the light. They hide away hoping God won't see them, thinking that they will get some benefit from these animals scrawled on the walls. Then Ezekiel is taken to another part of the temple. There he sees women weeping for Tammuz. We're not told much about what's going on here. But um, this weeping is an expression of worship or devotion, so there's some more idolatry going on in the temple here. And on top of that, Tammuz was actually a Babylonian god. So there's a a terrible irony here in that that Jerusalem, uh, they've already been defeated by Babylon once, and there's been a wave of exiles taken out, including Ezekiel. And here they are, uh, hoping to be saved from further, um, further attacks by Babylon by praying to a Babylonian god. When, they, when, the, when the exile is meant to turn them back to the god of Israel, to Yahweh, so that, that, he will, uh, so that they can come back to him and they can, they can stop having these consequences for their behavior. Well, finally, Ezekiel is taken into the inner court. And this is the furthest that you can go in the temple if you're not a priest. And here in the inner court, there is a group of people worshiping the sun, and they're prostrating themselves toward the east. Now, the temple is built in such a way that the door to the temple faces east. So these guys are in the court in front of the door to the temple, and they're also facing east, bowing down and worshiping the sun. So you can imagine, as they bow down to the sun, they're exposing their posteriors toward the temple of God, right? It's sort of a comical image. But it's also tragic. Um, I mean, mooning people is funny. And the idea that these guys are mooning the temple is funny. But it's also really sad that to, to just see the thoughtlessness of these people, to see their, their total disregard for their own God, for Yahweh, the true God, and their worship for the Son. So God won't stand for this. And he goes on to pronounce judgment. 
Here we are starting in about chapter 9 is where the judgment begins. Now, a word about what's going on here. For Ezekiel, this, remember this is a whole vision. When he's taken uh, to Jerusalem, he's not taken there physically. He's taking, taken in visions of God, it says. So this is a vision. What he sees in the temple, this idolatry that he sees, is probably, probably not a real-time image. These are real things that were going on in the temple. Not necessarily all at once. It's not like he's watching security camera footage of the temple or something like that. But these are things that have been happening and he's seeing them all together here in one kind of concise vision. When, when, when God shows him his judgment of Jerusalem and of the temple, which we're going to talk about in a second, he's going to call in some executioners and they're going to kill a bunch of people. Now this is not actually happening. This is a symbolic part of Ezekiel's vision. So it's meant to show the significance of the judgment that's about to come on Jerusalem when Babylon comes back. Because we know from the end of 2 Kings, Babylon does come back and they defeat Jerusalem again and the rest of the people are led out into exile. So this is the judgment that we know is coming. But it's important for Ezekiel to have this vision because without this vision, it looks like just a regular old military defeat of a, of a greater power over a lesser power. And so God is showing Ezekiel through this vision what is actually going on, the spiritual reality behind the, the coming defeat by Babylon. So God calls forth some executioners, and as he does so, his glory starts to move out of the temple. The idolatries of Israel are pushing God's glory out of the temple. He can't stand to be there anymore. And so he tells one of the executioners, there's six of them that have their weapons with them, and one of them has a writing case. Um, I don't know what all was involved in a writing case, but at least a writing implement and probably some ink. So he tells this guy, go through and mark the foreheads of all the people who, uh, who are devoted to me. All the people who are not committing idolatry. So the guy goes through it, he puts a mark on their heads, and then... Um, then he sends the rest of them through and they kill everyone who doesn't have a mark on their heads. This is God's judgment that he pronounces on Jerusalem. And remember, again, this is a symbolic judgment. This, this never actually happened. It's, it's explaining the coming defeat by Babylon. Then after the executioners go through the city, they're told to gather coals. Now this, you remember this, this vision of the cherubim that he saw earlier. There's four cherubim and they've got these weird wheels next to them. From, from last week. Well, he sees this same group of cherubim again and there's kind of a platform above it. Turns out this is sort of a heavenly chariot. There's four wheels, there's cherubim under it, so it's kind of a fancy chariot. There's lots of uh, fire and it turns out there's some coals in there with, uh, with the cherubim somehow. And the guy with the writing case, he's told, go in there, get some coals and scatter them all over the city. So he scatters these coals around the city and these uh, these are to signify the burning of the city. Jerusalem is going to be burned, is what God is saying. God's glory moves again now, and it, it kind of moves twice. And if you've ever read Ezekiel, there's one thing that everyone agrees on. It's really confusing, so it's hard to tell exactly where the glory is moving at this point. But it's moved a couple of times, and eventually it ends up at the, at the east gate of the temple, along with his chariot, his kind of cherubim chariot. The chariot's there, God's glory is above it. Um, Again, Israel's idolatries are literally driving the glory of God out of the temple. He's now like right on the, on the doorway to the outer side of the temple on the east. Now, why does God care so much about idolatry? Um, I mean, it's, it's obvious that throughout the Old Testament it's been forbidden. Why is it such a big deal? 
Why is it worth this harsh of a punishment? Well, God has been in a covenant relationship with Israel, and this means commitment. And God likens this betrayal, uh, to uh, this breach of covenant, to a wildly unfaithful spouse. He does this later in Ezekiel, and he, 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 he likens Israel to a spouse that has gone and slept around with a whole bunch of other people. Now, um, we don't usually think of God as getting emotional wounds, but if we take Israel serious, if we take Ezekiel seriously, I think that's exactly what we see here. We realize that Israel's idolatry feels to him in some way analogous to the way any of us would feel with an unfaithful spouse. It's ripping his heart out. It's tearing him up inside because he loves Israel. He wants to be in a committed relationship with them and they are refusing to be faithful to him. And I think it's sad, but we too are, of course, guilty of idolatry. Tim Keller uh, speaks well on this topic, I think. He says that idolatry is when we take anything, even a good thing, and make it ultimate. So this could be prestige, this could be money, this could be fitness, this could be a good body, this could be a social life, it could be social justice, it can be the environment, it can be the Seahawks. The list goes on. You can put anything in here. If you take a good thing or a bad thing, anything other than God, and make it ultimate, this is idolatry. And we all struggle with different things things that, are, that become idols in our lives or that have the potential to become idols in our lives. And just as it was problematic for Israel, it's problematic for us whenever we let something take God's place in our lives. So this is the first thing that's keeping Israel from the life God has for them, idolatry. The second is greed and selfishness, which is separating Israel from God. At this point in the vision, Ezekiel is taken to the eastern gate, And there he sees 25 men. They're called leaders and officials of Israel. Here we're starting in chapter 11, if you're following along. And these men are said to devise iniquity and to give wicked counsel. And there's two phrases that Ezekiel tells us they say, which is supposed to indicate to us that they devise iniquity and give wicked counsel. And these two phrases are, the time is not near to build houses, And the city is the pot, and we are the meat. Now, if I had a nickel for every time I've heard someone say those things, I would not have any nickels. These are weird statements, but uh, as best as we can tell, the first one, the time is not near to build houses. It's a confusing statement, but it seems to be about smugness over the fact that these leaders, as, um, as the first wave of exiles has gone out, they've kind of snatched up all the houses and all the land that have been abandoned by these exiles, so there's no need to build new houses. They're, they're sitting pretty, right? They've got what they need. Um, they have inherited a lot of wealth and comfort at the expense of the, the first wave of exiles. Secondly, the city is the pot and we are the meat. Kind of a similar idea. As it turns out, back in Ezekiel's day, um, choice cuts of meat were boiled. I don't know why anyone would ever boil a choice cut of meat. I can't think of a worse thing to do with meat we had a steak for Father's Day dinner, and I'm so thankful. We were at my parents'. I'm so thankful that my dad didn't boil our steaks. Because, <laughs> I don't know, that sounds terrible, but that's what they did. So, we'll roll with it for this morning. Uh, so, when they talk about uh, the city is the pot and we are the meat, it's something along the lines of, we're the cream of the crop in this city. We've got it good um, We've got it good now. There's all this extra land and housing that we've gotten. When the exiles went out, um, now we've got it made. We're safe. 
inside these walls. Uh, we've got a lot of money. And God, his pronouncement of judgment clarifies some of what they've done. They've filled the city uh, with slain, with the slain, and they've, they've killed many people in their city, whether this is through uh, kind of false trials where they're, you know, uh, they want some guys. Well, we know from the book of Kings, the King Ahab, he says uh, he wants a vineyard. And so his wife Jezebel uh, has this mock trial and, and gets this guy who owns it killed so that Ahab can have the, the vineyard. So maybe there's some stuff like this going on. Maybe they're actually, you know, taking out hits on people in their own city, sending some assassins to kill them or whatever. Whatever the case may be, they are killing their own people in the city. So God pronounces judgment on them, and he flips their meat pot analogy around in kind of a, a brilliant um, turn of phrase or, or analogy. He says, oh yeah, you think, you're the, you think that this city is the meat pot and you're the meat? Well, in a sense, you're right. This city is a meat pot because you've butchered all these people within Jerusalem, and you've, you've turned this city into a huge pot of meat because of all these people that you've killed. But... You think you're the choice cuts and that you're going to stay in here and be safe. In fact, you're going to be taken out of the city and you're going to be killed on the outskirts of, the, of, of Israel, on the outskirts of the town, on the outskirts of Israel. So he flips their analogy around on them. They've feared the sword and now they're going to fall by the sword at the borders of Israel, having been ousted from Jerusalem. Now later in Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel again picks up his critique of these leaders. This is chapter 34. And in this chapter, he, he uh, likens these leaders of, is, of Israel and Jerusalem to shepherds, to bad shepherds um, who don't take a good care of their flock. Now, we know something about shepherds, not a lot probably for most of us, but a, a little bit, enough. Shepherds, we know, are supposed to feed their sheep. They're supposed to take care of their sheep. They're supposed to lead them to green pastures, lead them to um, clean waters. They're supposed to protect them from predators. But these are false shepherds. Instead of feeding their sheep, they feed themselves by slaughtering the, the fattest of the sheep for their own feasts. They make fine clothes for themselves out of the sheep's wool. They don't feed the sheep. They don't lead them to water. They don't protect them from wolves. In fact, the real danger for the sheep is the shepherds themselves. So no wonder God is angry. This is his flock, and the shepherds who are over his flock are eating his sheep. And destroying his sheep. We see similar things happening all the time in our own world. People with power are regularly tempted to use it for their own advantage at the expense of the sheep. It can be big companies using sweatshops to, be, to make their products, to increase their products. Maybe it's lenders, uh, like in the early 2000s, lenders who contributed to our housing bubble by using irresponsible lending practices because it made them money. Maybe it's a racially, the racially restrictive covenants for neighborhoods in Seattle that for much of our history aim to put the, the needs, and the, not the needs, but the, the interests of white people over and against uh, the interests of people of color. We as a society are far from innocent when it comes to being good shepherds that put the well-being of the sheep before our own. In Ezekiel, God promises to set up his shepherd David. He talks about setting up his shepherd David in the time to come. And he's not talking about resurrecting David uh, again, but he's talking about a shepherd like David or a shepherd in the line of David. And this is going to be a good shepherd who will finally take care of his sheep. He says, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. 
He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And Jesus picks this up in John when he says, All who came before me are thieves and robbers. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And that's a leadership model that we can, uh, or a, a, a form of leadership that we can model ourselves after. What if those of us who are in leadership approach leadership in this way? Maybe some of you who are in leadership do. And if you do, I'm so thankful for it. I'm so thankful for it, and I, and I congratulate you for it. Because just imagine what would it would be like if our, in our city, in Seattle, if the leaders in business, the leaders in city government, the leaders wherever we have leaders, approach leadership in this way, thinking of the sheep first, putting the sheep's needs before their own, putting the sheep's well-being before their own. Well, once this judgment is passed, God's glory finally leaves the temple and Jerusalem altogether. It stops over the mountain east of the city, which comes to be called the Mount of Olives in the New Testament. And it stays there over the Mount of Olives. God has left Jerusalem. It's no longer a holy city. The temple is no longer a holy building. It's just a building now. The glory of God has left. So this is the second thing that has, that has kept Israel from the life God has for them, their greed and their selfishness. The third thing we want to talk about, though, is hope. And here things look a little brighter. Before God's glory entirely departs, he leaves Ezekiel with some hope. He says, I have been a sanctuary to them. And by them, he's, he means the first wave of exiles, including Ezekiel. He says, I have been a sanctuary to them for a little while in the countries where they have gone. So it's true. These people have been taken off into exile but God is with them in exile. Now, it was, it was common to think of, God, uh, of gods in the, old, in the ancient world as being uh, based in a location. So you've got maybe a god of the mountains, you've got a god of Babylon, and you know, the further you get from there, the less influence that god has. But God is showing that he's different. Although they would expect him, his, his power and his care to be localized and centralized in Jerusalem, it turns out that he's been with them in exile all along. I mean, think about where Ezekiel gets his first mission, uh, vision. Where is it that God's glory meets him? It's by the Kevar River in Babylon. So God is there with his exiles in, uh, in Babylon. This isn't a fundamental rift in the relationship between God and Israel. God hasn't abandoned them. He's still interested in the welfare of those who have been exiled. Part of his judgment on those false leaders in Jerusalem, in fact is that when the first wave of exiles was taken, rather than repent, they snatched up the land and the houses. So the second judgment that's coming on Israel, on Jerusalem, is in part a defense of those who are already in exile. God is still with the exiles. Further, God declares that he will gather Israel back together and return them to their land. The exile is not forever. Excuse me a moment. And when they return... When they return to their land, God will give them a new spirit, he says, and a new heart. And this is going to be a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone, he says, like they have now. They have hearts of stone, but he's going to take out the stone hearts and put in flesh hearts. They will finally live by God's ways when they come back. They're going to truly be God's people, and he will be their God. This points to a fundamental truth that we must understand if we're to make sense of the exile. God's punishment is for the sake of restoring Israel. It's not for the sake of destroying Israel. 
It's for formation, not for destruction. Often in the prophets, you see that he uses language that implies total destruction. And he does this because he's trying to communicate the, the severity of the punishment that is coming because he wants them to return to them. You see, when Hezekiah, the king who's, who's late in the history, uh, a few generations before the exile, when he returns to God, the exile is delayed. God wants the threat of punishment to return people to him so that he doesn't have to punish them. And when he does punish them, he doesn't want it to destroy them. He wants it to form them and bring them back to him. And we see that, that the Israelites, the Jews, pick up on this idea in their history after the exile. This is in the book of 2 Maccabees. If you don't recognize it, that's because it's not in your Bible, probably, unless you have the NRSV. And the 2 Maccabees is a book that's in something called the Apocrypha, and it's not part of the Bible, but <clears throat> it is written by the Jews between, uh, between the end of the Old Testament and the start of the New Testament. So don't freak out that I'm going to read you a passage from here. You won't go to hell for it. Uh, it's just, I'm not using it as scripture, I'm just using it to show you that the Jews pick up on this idea. They understand what God is trying to do. The author is describing uh, a calamity that has fallen the Jews in between the Old and New Testaments, and he says, Now I urge those who read this book not to be depressed by such calamities, but to recognize that these punishments were designed not to destroy, but to discipline our people. In fact, it is a sign of great kindness not to let the impious alone for long, but to punish them immediately. For in the case of the other nations, the Lord waits patiently to punish them until they have reached the full measure of their sins. But he does not deal in this way with us, in order that he may not take vengeance on us afterward when our sins have reached their height. Therefore, he never withdraws his mercy from us. Although he disciplines us with calamities, he does not forsake his own people." In other words, unlike the, uh, unlike the Canaanites, uh, where God let their sin reach his height. So you remember when God promises Canaan to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he tells them, well, this land is for you, but not yet, because the sin of the Canaanites has not reached its height. He waits for the sin of the Canaanites to reach its height, and then he, uh, uh, he kind, of, kind of wipes them out, but there's still, still a few of them left. But Canaanite uh, peoples are gone, and Israel inherits their land. But that's not how he treats Israel. With Israel, he punishes them in order to restore them. And the authors of, this, of Second Maccabees have picked up on that. Now, I remember when I was a kid, <clears throat> I, um, there was once or twice where I got punished for things. Um, I, I mean, I almost never did anything I wasn't supposed to do, but every once in a while, I did. And one time we were at the zoo, and I had terrible allergies when I was a kid. I still do. Uh, but thanks to the magic of naturopathy, I have got them under control now. But at the time, I didn't, I didn't have a good treatment for them. <clears throat> I'm probably, uh, I don't know, first grade or something. Or, uh, and I, I was playing with the grass at the zoo, which I'm very allergic to. And my mom knows that if I um, play with the grass, my eyes are going to swell up. I'm going to have a terribly runny nose. I'm going to be miserable. I'm not going to be able to breathe very well. And so she keeps telling me, don't play with the grass. Don't play with the grass. Don't play with the grass. I keep doing it. She goes, play with the grass one more time, you're going to get a spanking. Play with the grass one more time, I get a spanking, right? She's not doing that just to hurt me. The idea isn't to give me pain. The idea is that since I'm too foolish to learn from the delayed consequences of, um, of a runny nose and itchy eyes, 
maybe I'll learn from the immediate consequences of a spanking and learn not to do that and I'll remember next time. The, the idea is that she wants me to be happier and so by giving me this consequence I can enter into, into a better kind of life, a life where I don't have itchy eyes and I don't have a runny nose. Uh, the idea is not just to cause pain. And so that's, that's the idea of what God is doing with punishment. He's trying to get them into the life that he has for them. But this raises the question, why is God so concerned about Israel living his way? What is it about him and his way that he needs everyone to do things his way? Um, well, the reason is this. God has been trying to give us life ever since creation. He's created us to live in a certain way. And as the creator, he knows what is good for us and what is not good for us. Think, you, can think of, you can think of a goldfish. Goldfish are freshwater fish, right? My dad has an aquarium with some goldfish on a table in the living room. If I take one of those goldfish and I drive down here to uh, the Puget Sound and I put it in the Puget Sound, it's gonna die because goldfish are not made to live in water. Now, you can imagine a goldfish saying, no, I want, to live in, I want to live in the ocean. I'm tired of this fish tank. But if I put it in the ocean, it's going to die. So this is, this is kind of, a, I think, a helpful way to think about why God cares so much about his ways. Because we're going to die if we do it a different way. It's not that he's worried about being right. It's not that he's worried about controlling us. He wants us to have life. And he has created us to have life. We see this even from the beginning, from creation, He's put the tree of life in the Garden of Eden because he wants us to have life. And it's not talking about just biological life. We all know that we can, we can live in disobedience to God and we, can, we, may, we may live to a hundred. But that's not the kind of life he's talking about. He's talking about real life. In the Gospel of John, it tells us that real life, the life that Jesus gives, is to know God and to know Jesus. And this life is characterized by a full and rich relationship with God. It's characterized by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, God's own Spirit living within us. The Spirit gives us eyes to see and it gives us ears to hear and a mouth to speak as God sees and hears and speaks in the world. God doesn't want us to be dead images like idols of wood and stone that have eyes, that have ears, that have mouths but can't see and can't hear and can't speak. He wants us to be living images, images quickened by his spirit indwelling within us that gives us hearts of soft and responsive flesh, not hearts of stone like Ezekiel says Israel has now. Hearts of flesh that are full of compassion for those around us, fully partaking in the life of this world as God intends it to be lived. But we repeatedly run from this real life to some poor substitute. To borrow C.S. Lewis's analogy, we're like children that run into the back alley to play with mud pies when our parents are trying to get us in the car to go to a vacation at the sea. Who wants to play in the alley when you can have a Hawaiian vacation, right? I don't know about you, but I want this life that God has for us. And I want it abundantly. These chapters in Ezekiel show us a lot of depressing and tragic stuff going on in Israel. And it's sad to me that it works like a mirror, revealing to us many of those same things going on in the world around us and even in our own hearts. We see God's anguish over the stubbornness and continued rejection of him and the way he uses exile to return the hearts of his people to him so that they can have real life. The encouraging thing for us in this passage 
is that God never gave up on Israel and he doesn't give up on us either. Even at Israel's lowest point, even at our lowest point. And the best news of all is that just as God's spirit enters Ezekiel and stands him up on his feet in the beginning of Ezekiel when he starts to have these visions, so the spirit of God enters us as well. We have the spirit of God with us. So I'm going to invite the band, band forward now. And as we move into a time of continued worship through singing, my encouragement is to you is to, be, is to pray that God would fill you more and more with his spirit. That he would continue softening your heart and clarifying your sight and sharpening your hearing and equipping your mouth so that you can see and hear the world as, as he does. So that you can speak and live in the world in the way that he's created you to do so. In a way that reflects his character. May it be so with me and may it be so with you. Let me pray. Lord God, I do thank you for your spirit within us. I thank you that you open our eyes and, and open our mouths and open our ears. And God, I just ask that you would be in this community, that it would be a com- community characterized by the life of your spirit, that they would live in relationship with each other uh, by your spirit, that they would live in this community here in West Seattle by your spirit as well. And that this would be a place where, where, where people who come in don't see idolatry and don't see us Uh, turning away from you toward other things, but see us fully devoted to you, fully living by the power of your spirit.